I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast, The Times. I'm Matt Chollis. This is the latest in our installments of walking out with leadership contenders, Tory leadership contenders. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Andrea Ledson. Hi, Matt. Hi. A beautiful sunny day in St James's Park, just up the road from the Treasury in the Houses of Parliament. This is significant because this is the first time you've spoken to the Times for three years. And the last time you spoke to the Times during a Tory leadership contest, it didn't end terribly happily. So we'll deal with all that later. We'll deal with all that later. Let's, though, because originally the Walking Out podcast started when people kept walking out of political parties uh, and resigning from things. So let's, let's talk about your most recent foray into the news and your decision to leave the Cabinet. Why you chose to do it when you did and how many times did you got that close before that point? Well, the last three years were pretty tricky, I have to say. I was determined to support the Prime Minister to deliver Brexit. And, you know, it did mean uncomfortable times. But um, really, the, the only time I just knew I couldn't, couldn't carry on was the um, withdrawal agreement bill having in it a clause that would, in effect, enable a second referendum if the House voted for it. And not only that, but a commitment that if the House did vote for it, then legislation would be put in place. And that would have meant another extension to Article 50. So that, for me, I'm afraid, totally breached the red line. So I had to ring the Prime Minister and tell her I couldn't stay in her government anymore. And and how does she take that? I mean, she's fairly used to those calls by that point. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't want to uh, report on a private conversation, but it was a very, you know, friendly phone call. I mean, we both very regretted the fact that this was happening. And, you know, I do think she has done her utmost to get her deal over the line. But I think um, it's quite clear, you know, the House rejected it three times. The withdrawal agreement is dead. And what we need is a different plan. We'll come on to your plan in a sec. But what do you think happened in that in that week? You also had the Cabinet meeting where she... Some people thought they'd agreed what the plan was going to be, then the Prime Minister made an announcement. It she just sort of gone a bit potty, the idea of, oh, well, if we stick a second referendum in it, this is going to, this is going to get it through. Was it just the last desperate throw of some dice that was never really going to work? I mean, she was 
very determined to try and get the withdrawal agreement bill through and I was certainly a fan of actually introducing the bill um, and I don't really know why it translated as it did into something I couldn't support but I certainly did try very hard to uh, persuade um, number 10 not to have that clause in there and so you know for me it was really just the prospect of having to announce the second reading of that bill that had that potential for a second referendum in that I just couldn't do that the next day I would not be able to stand up and do that. And obviously quite a lot of you, during your three years around the cabinet table, you'd seen a lot of people come and go. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Had there been other points where you'd come close to following them, whether it was after Chequers, when David Davis and Boris Johnson went, in the autumn last year when Dominic Raab and Esther McVeigh went? Yes, of course. I mean, I'm a passionate Brexiteer and I really do believe in the bright future that awaits us when we leave the EU. So inevitably, every time we seem to be going backwards, um, I was incredibly close to thinking that's it. But all the time I was hanging on to the fact that the withdrawal agreement bill is legally leaving the European Union. And so from my point of view, once we have legally left, we can sort out other things, even, even if it takes years to do so. The key for me was that legal departure. So that's why I stayed in government to try and deliver that. And what about those that did leave, you know, Boris Johnson, David Davis? Do you think they, they helped the Brexit cause by leaving when they did? Well, you know, that's a matter for them, but obviously it didn't really help the... Uh, the, the balance of cabinet and I certainly think that um, from my point of view staying in government and fighting for Brexit was the right thing to do. I think if you if you resign you might feel that you know that that's the right thing for you but of course you then remove your own ability to influence the outcome. Okay so let's wind, um, wind the clock back again. Let's talk about the last time you ran for the Tory leadership. Do you regret pulling out of the race when you did? No, I think if I had the same facts in front of me as I had then, I would have made the same decision because, you know, we'd had a government who had told the people, you know, in a, in a booklet to every household that the economy was going to melt down, that pensions would be, you know, reduced, that the NHS would be reduced, all because we voted to leave. And we had just done it. We had just voted to leave. Now, I never believed that and I was incredibly excited about the prospects outside of the EU, but nevertheless, we needed certainty. And so when I was told by Sir Graham Brady that I was number two in the race, I said to him then, well, we need a short leadership campaign. We can't have a lack of um, leadership at this present time. And there was just no chance. It was going to be a nine-week campaign. Theresa had two-thirds of all of the parliamentarians behind her. And so I felt it was the right thing to do in the national interest. So in spite of, you know, looking with hindsight now, I think faced with those same facts, I would have made the same decision. Do you think if you'd become Prime Minister instead, Britain would be out of the EU by now? Well, um, I don't really want to speculate on that because I'm sure there would have been enormous challenges in all circumstances, but that would have been my aim, that's true. That does sound like a yes. <laughs> no, I just, you know, you can't, you can't see what would have happened under different circumstances. Hmm. Let's just talk about that point when you did pull out last. Was that just a really miserable, grim time being caught in the middle of that? sort of whirlwind weekend? No, it was a very purposeful decision. I mean, actually, I spoke to Sir Graham on the Thursday evening 
and told him, I think unless the campaign can be significantly shortened, I would have to withdraw because, you know, it was in the national interest to do so. So, no, it wasn't... Uh, grim or gloomy I, I actually remember sitting down on the Sunday morning and having on the one side of the sheet of paper reasons to withdraw and on the other side of the sheet of paper reasons to remain in the contest and there was no doubt that the risk of a economic meltdown and of the prophecy of, um, of, the, of an economic recession coming true was the thing that concerned me most about a lack of clear leadership from day one. And so on that list of I suppose I should ask you the interview you did with Rachel Sylvester where you talked about how you being a mother meant you had a stake in the future and this was taken as a implied criticism of Theresa May. Was that part of your decision making as well, the row over that? So I never have thought that. I never thought anything of the sort, in fact the complete opposite. And you know we all have an equal stake in our society and I mean for what it's worth I was extremely upset on behalf of all of those people who were wounded by that article and so if anything that would have been a reason to stay in the fight but it was very clearly trumped by the fact that there was a very real risk to our economy. Do you think now looking back that given you've been in the cabinet and you've seen what the job involves do you think you could have been prime minister you could have done it? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, obviously, um, at the time, I was energy minister and hadn't been in cabinet. And what I would say is, over the last three years, I've learnt so much about good governance, about how things work, and formed my own views on how things could be done so much better. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly been incredibly valuable the last three years in preparing to become a leadership candidate. And, of course, then, back in 2016, I didn't have that experience. Do you, do you feel more ready this time? Oh, very much so. Every bit as passionate about the job as I was in 2016, but definitely more prepared. And you're not someone, David Liddington's talked about, the, the closer he's seen it up close, the more <laughs> the more miserable it looks and he wants yeah. to have nothing to do with it. Yeah, no, I think it's been such a difficult time for Theresa May and I absolutely pay tribute to her for her courage and her resolute determination to get the deal over the line and quite honestly Matt I would say that it takes a woman of guts and strength to stick with it as she has. Do you think if a man had been in that position they would have resigned? Yes. You do? I do yeah I, I you know I'm I think um, women and men are absolutely equal but I think what we've seen in Theresa May has been the most remarkable resilience. As you've brought up the role of women in politics are you a feminist? Definitely, yeah. Half the world are women and the other half owe their existence to them. It's just in the 2016 interview with Rachel Sylvester, you said, I'm not a feminist because I'm not anti-men, I just see people as people. Yeah, well, so that's, that's also true. Have I don't you changed no, your no, mind? not mutually exclusive. I mean, I'm a feminist in that I believe in equal rights and equality. So saying I believe men and women are equal is the same thing as saying I'm a feminist. And the reality is at the moment that women do not have an equal say. We don't have equality. And that's why being a feminist is extremely important in, in setting right that balance. Do you think with the work that you've done, that you did as Commons leader on harassment and bullying and particularly the way that women have been treated working in politics and in Parliament, is that sort of fired you up more to deal with that? Well, I am 
really clear and always have been as leader of the Commons that people should be treated with dignity and respect and what we've seen in Parliament is some pretty appalling examples of bullying and harassment and sexual harassment and it's been something that's become something of a of a, a burning mission for me is to stamp that out so yeah I mean I would say having had the role of chairing the working group that looked into a new procedure a new behaviour code all of those things has made me even more determined to stamp it out and to make sure people people do treat each other with respect and you know obviously we've got the issues in Parliament but we also have real problems in our public discourse I mean you know um, social media always picks on sort of gender biased um, attacks on women and it, it is pretty disgraceful you know I, I as leader I would go to schools and universities and talk to young people about a life in politics and how to engage and uh, and very often in fact always the question would come up but what about the abuse how will we cope with the abuse. So when you reach a position where it's actually putting young women in particular off going into politics to make the world a better place, then I think that's very serious. Would you advise a young person to go into politics, given how grim it is at the moment? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's the most satisfying and rewarding job in the world. And, you know, I think um, people tend to see, you know, the sort of political arguments and disagreements, but the reality behind it is very different. So first of all, you have the amazing opportunity in your constituency to really Really change people's lives for the better and then in Parliament itself you know I've worked cross-party with so many colleagues on so many different issues you know whether it's on uh, social justice matters obviously on the harassment and bullying stuff that was really genuine cross-party and we actually get along very well as people and so I think the headline often puts puts off new new arrivals into politics in a way that it is very regrettable and given your experience of, of what's gone on in Parliament in the past couple of years. Has is, is John Burko made you more of a feminist? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I have huge respect for the role of the Speaker of the House of Commons. Which is very different to saying you have huge respect for John Burko. Well, you know, I, I, we, I will always call out the things that concern me and particularly when it comes to people being belittled and put down and shouted out and, and harassed and bullied and so I've, I'm always uh, very keen to make sure I don't just walk on by and um, at the same time I think that the speaker fulfills an absolutely vital role so I try not to make it personal um, you know as leader of the Commons I was always extremely courteous to him and always sought to find ways that we can work together for the good of Parliament I mean the, the role of leader and the role of speaker are quite closely intertwined in that way. I mean, one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen in the House of Commons was when you stood up and challenged him <laughs> over calling you a stupid woman. Has he ever just said sorry? Well, you know, uh, I'm not sure if he has, no. And that's not a great position, is it, for the common speaker to have said that about a cabinet minister and not acknowledge it was the wrong thing to do? Well, I'm not sure it was a great thing for the leader of the opposition to say about the prime minister either, and I'm not sure that he's apologised either. Yeah, not everyone has showered themselves in huge amounts of glory in, uh, <laughs> in, in recent uh, weeks. We just, we've now walked through the park. We're now almost at Buckingham Palace. Where's uh, my ice cream, Matt? We need, yeah, we need, well, the next time we pass a van. We don't want to have an ice cream at the beginning, because otherwise you'll get silly. <laughs> I'll have a sugar high. Um, here is an ice cream. We'll walk up as, as we walk up towards Buckingham Palace. Um, Donald Trump was here at the beginning of the week. Would, would Prime Minister Leadsom have offered him a state visit so, so soon? Definitely. He is the leader of the free world. He's the democratically elected President of the United States. I mean, everyone can have individual personal views about people, but the USA are our greatest strategic allies. They are our closest relationship in the world. And, of course, even if you know none of that counted, which it does hugely, there's also the fact that if you want to influence 
influence um, the views of the president. If you want to uh, change minds in particular topics, then you have to be close to them and therefore you get the chance to put your disagreements as well as the areas you agree on. If he had been working in Parliament, he'd have fallen foul of your harassment and bullying code of conduct, wouldn't he? Well, you know, that, that was very difficult for me to say. I mean, that... that, that um, that complaints procedure is totally confidential and independently investigated. So, you know, people go forward and complain when they feel that they've been harassed and bullied. And that's a, it's a subjective matter. Let's stop for a sec. Let's have an ice cream. Yeah. Do, they, do they do ice creams? Yeah. They're the, they are the astonishingly expensive. That's, oh they, that's right. They take a card. Go on. You can have a, you can have a whippy. You know, Margaret Thatcher invented that. You know that, don't you? I think that is that not fake news? Well, that's the question. I've never actually looked at up but reputedly she was working for the the company that invented Mr Whippy and had a hand in it. Three Whippies please. 99s. 99s. Yeah. Yeah not, other soft ice cream. I used to sell ice cream. I used to make ice cream. I had a Saturday job making ice Did cream. Did you? Yeah. Okay I used I had, to have a paper round. I used to have a I had a brilliant Saturday job driving around in an ice cream. Oh that's a fantastic job. Now that you see is really satisfying because you're making people happy yeah. and that actually is ultimately what politicians should be doing too is making people happy. Do you think there's been enough of that lately? Politicians no. making people happy? No I think you know it's all it's all not been a thanks. It's not been a great experience in, in recent weeks and months and uh, we, you know, we need to turn that around. We need to start being positive and optimistic and talking about the amazing future that lies ahead of us. You know, we've got three and a half million more people in employment. Real wages are rising fast. Um, you know, the national living wage has gone up again. Um, the sun's shining. You know, we need to be positive. We need to cheer. Is this not what Brexiteers say when all the facts are pointing in the opposite direction? If we all just cheered up and we're a bit more positive, it's all going to be all right. Well, I think the facts are pointing in a very positive direction. <laughs> I don't, you know, I think for me, Brexit is a huge opportunity and it's going to be an amazing new world for the United Kingdom as we take our place on the world stage. We can be a real force for good in the world once we're free of the... Uh, of the European Union's institutions and that doesn't mean you know that we in any way reduce our relationship with our EU friends and neighbours but it means that we get the chance to actually build the old friendships that we have with the Commonwealth, our, our, our amazing relationship with the United States and just gives us loads more options and opportunities. You did say, and this actually did come out during the, the referendum campaign, that you'd previously said if we left the EU it would be a disaster for our economy, it would lead to a decade of economic and political uncertainty. Are we now sort of three years into that decade? I mean, if, give it seven years and it's all going to be all right? <laughs> no, I mean, I've, I have explained that before. I mean, I, I, like many other people of my generation, really grew up as a part of the European Union and knew no, knew no difference. So I set up a group called the Fresh Start Project, along with Chris Eaton-Harris and George Eustace, back in 2011, that was looking at fundamental reforms of the EU, such that the UK could remain in it as a committed partner. And I was actually doing a lengthy speech at the Hansard Society talking about the fact that as the EU is right now it's like the Roman Empire standing at the end of its own civilization and not realizing it so this uh, particular sentence was in a way my appeal to them to believe that I wanted reform rather than exit and so you know at the time I remained very committed to reform fundamental reform we did a huge amount of work as Fresh Start Project on on, on options for change culminating in a manifesto for change that we gave to David Cameron when he went to seek reforms with the EU and frankly about 2% of what we sought was included and so for me I remember it fault, Is that the EU's fault or David Cameron's fault? Well I, I mean ultimately it's all sides isn't it whether we didn't ask 
um, strongly and persuasively enough, whether there was a, a belief that, well, we'd have a referendum and then they would overrule it or, you know, I don't know. But certainly that willingness to reform was not there, even in areas that would be very much in the interest of all EU citizens. And so it just, for me, it was an instant, right, well, then our future is so much brighter outside of the EU. If we can't, if we can't even get modest reforms, then we have to leave because it is going in the wrong direction. Let's both have a quick lick of our ice creams, otherwise yeah, we're going to get a very dripping, melting, very, exactly, dri- yeah. very dripping mess. I mean, I'm, they are nice, the ice creams. I think his, his machine could do with being a bit colder. Than it? It's not as firm, the whippy, as it could be. Yeah, it's a little bit runny, but you've just wolfed yours down, Matt. <laughs> I think I was, I was once at a particularly pointless Gymkhana selling ice creams, and I ate 15 in a day. Oh, no, really? Yeah, well, there, there are a lot of different flavours, so you could have all different combinations. Mm. Well, you joined the, joined the referendum campaign. You said it was perfectly possible to negotiate terms of exit. So how is it we're now in a position where the main argument in the Tory leadership contest is whether or not we can suspend Parliament to fall out of the EU by accident? <laughs> well, I'm definitely not an advocate of that. And, uh, you know, having been leader of the Commons for the last two years, I've um, had many conversations with the clerk of the Commons on what is feasible, what is the right thing to do. And, and none of those sorts of um, ideas would, would either work or would be acceptable so the, in a so parliamentary the, democracy. Is it the case the clerks have said you, you just can't do it, you can't prorogue Parliament? so that we just leave by accident at the end of October? Um, Well, it's it's a bit more nuanced than that, but essentially um, proroguing um, any idea of um, of just you know calling a lengthy recess or whatever th- those things are just not those those would not fly that would be completely unacceptable in a parliamentary democracy and it would presumably politicise the Queen in a way that a woman who lives at the end of the park would rather she wasn't <laughs> well I'm quite sure that that would also be a very serious factor but I don't believe anybody would actually seriously consider doing it whose fault is it that we haven't left well that is a very tricky question I mean I, I <laughs> It's, it's very difficult to see where this has gone wrong, but arguably you could say that um, we should have just left and then talked about what happens afterwards. So potentially um, left the EU uh, with a significant implementation period in which to negotiate things. Because the problem, of course, that we've had is that until we actually leave, um, there is always the prospect of a further extension. Now, I do think that we've come to the end of the road with the EU. I'd be very surprised if the EU27 were willing to consider some kind of... um, extension to Article 50 just so that we can continue arguing about it. You know, I think they would expect us to be either having a second referendum or a general election, neither of which I think would be at all desirable right now, if ever. You know, I don't, I don't believe a second referendum would divide our country even more and a general election that risked a hard left Labour government would be a disaster for the country. So neither of those should be on the table, which means we must leave the EU at the end of October. And so, you know, that's why I think we should have a man Managed exit. So let's, OK, let's talk about what managed exit is. Is this just no deal hard Brexit, but it sounds a bit nicer? No, it's in fact the complete opposite because a managed exit and a no deal are a contradiction in terms. So, I, I mean, I'd quite like to sort of at least nail that point. So a managed exit would essentially mean putting into legislation and making offers on a lot of the measures that are actually already agreed in the withdrawal agreement. So it would mean picking up the bits that are clearly in our interests and the EU's interests, things like settling citizens' rights, sorting out the future for Gibraltar and our sovereign bases, sorting out what happens to a box of 
UK-made chocolates on a shelf in Germany at the point of exit, things like that, which would be very sensible and in all of our interest to do that. And then at the same time, preparing for no deal, preparing for a virtual border in Northern Ireland and preparing a temporary free trading arrangement for, say, a year so that actually we can go to the EU to the EU27 during the month of August, find them at their holiday hotels and homes, wherever they are, and actually talk them through these sensible measures leading to a managed exit at the end of October, which would then be a smooth exit. If it's such a good idea and so straightforward, why didn't Theresa May do it? Well, I've been putting this forward for quite a long time in Cabinet, and I think... I mean, I don't know. I genuinely don't know the answer to that. I've certainly been promoting it for a long time, and I think the, the feeling was that we would get the withdrawal agreement bill over the line, and there was certainly um, a lot of effort made to do that. But ultimately, um, I think it was doomed to failure, and I think it is now completely dead. Was it a mistake to just keep bringing it back? I know they say that's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing again, hoping for a different outcome. Was it a mistake to just keep bringing it back? Well, the trouble is, you know, you could you could say that now, seeing that the result of keeping on bringing it back. But as ever with these things, it's very easy to say that in hindsight. But at the time, you know, there was optimism. There were efforts made to, you know, to have alternative arrangements for the backstop, to time limit it, to uh, make it so that the UK could unilaterally exit. So there were various um, efforts made to try and get it over the line. And each time, I think there was genuine optimism that this might be the moment so you, you can see why it was it, it kept being brought back when i had a walk around the park with rory stewart earlier in the week he and i referred to him as being a remainer and he said no he was the one who kept voting for the deal so that we could leave and actually it was the brexiteers who complain about the fact we haven't left but the reason we haven't left is because they wouldn't vote for it do you, do you think that's are they on the list of reasons to blame for why we haven't left i mean i, I i'm not pointing fingers one thing i would say is that those who passionately campaign to remain in the EU and now accept that we have to leave because that's the democratic will of the people, I take my hat off to them. I think that that's been amazing is to see the number of colleagues who passionately disagree with me about leaving the EU but have actually been willing to vote for the deal to leave because they think that the people's um, opinion and decision overrides their own personal views. So I think they deserve a lot of credit but equally I think that um, you do need to have in the next leadership somebody who really does believe in the future for the UK outside of the EU rather than somebody who is uh, tolerating it as, as something that must be done. Do you think that was the, the problem with Theresa May? That She never really looked like she thought this was a good idea. She wasn't somebody who got up every morning and thought, great, we're doing Brexit. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's, it's another of those imponderables. I mean, I, I, Theresa May has been very determined to deliver Brexit. There's no doubt about that. And whether, you know, the, the difference was that she didn't passionately believe it, I think it's very hard to say that that's uh, what's to blame for this. I, I think she has done her utmost, and as I said earlier, I'm, I totally admire her for that. Lots of people say they admire her for sticking at it, but in the end, was she just not very good? I think she's an extremely determined, resolute, patriotic person. But was she any good as Prime Minister? Well, she has done so many things for the nation. I mean, she introduced the first Slavery Act um, in the modern world. Uh, she's put in place so many different measures for equality. She set out women to win to try and get more women into politics. She has presided over the race disparity audit to make sure that, the, that there is proper racial equality in our nation. So she's done a huge amount of things and her... 
domestic violence bill that she is um, that we would be introducing in the next session that would be a groundbreaking bill as well in the world so I do I do think she's achieved a lot but ultimately this has evaded her and do you think someone who was better at getting on with colleagues a people person and a people business that is politics would have made a difference a bit of tree just fell into my ice cream. <laughs> I nearly <laughs> ate it. Well, no, well, that's the most inventive way of avoiding the answering a question that I've ever heard. Ask me again. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Do yeah. you think that if somebody was slightly more gregarious, who could get on with people, who was a people person in the game of politics, that would have made a difference? I mean, you're asking me all these questions to, to kind of... Well, that's the nature history. of an interview. Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> so what do I think? I certainly think somebody who, uh, who becomes the next leader needs to be a serious person with serious ideas and a serious plan. But I also do think we need to transform our communications. I think we need to reach out to the country. And if I were Prime Minister, I would have a regular phone-in and I would have a regular chat to the country and you know seek to really improve the communications. Because I do think one of the big problems we have right now is that people feel dislocated from politics they feel as if politicians are all there in Westminster in a bubble not talking to them and not listening to them so I think that has to change. Okay let's, um, on the subject of you, you mentioned that it needs to be a serious person let's talk about Boris Johnson so back in 2016 there was a famous note that he was going to give you saying hi Andrea great that you're in our, my top three and you never got it and so you were going to be on his team and then you decided to run instead. I don't remember any of that, Matt. You don't remember any of that? No. You no. were never on Team Boris? I never, I don't remember. <laughs> no, of course I remember Mind the, it. Mind the horse's mess. Of course mess. I remember it. <laughs> There's so a, it's got a lot of it in the park. I might just collapse into it and avoid your next questions. <laughs> Where are we going with this, Matt? What was the job that he'd offered you? Mm, I really can't remember. You can, of course you can. Mm. You've been offered one of the top three jobs in government. Well, you know, that was then... And, you know, I think there's been plenty written about it. If you want to read Tim Shipman's excellent book... Not again, I don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Stop mentioning no, it. I don't really want to go there. Oh, fine. The fact that you're running again this time suggests that you're no more persuaded of Boris Johnson's abilities as part to become Prime Minister. Oh, you know, all my colleagues are fantastic. I have the greatest regard for every single one of them. <laughs> I wish I could describe the face that you just pulled uh, after that sentence. Um, do the you have radio? Sorry, the I beauty... have a face for radio. <laughs> do you think that Boris Johnson would do any better as Prime Minister than what? Than Theresa May? Uh, uh, I think, I think he would do very well. Um, and I think you know, I mean, it's, it's a very subjective decision. Obviously, I think I would be a better Prime Minister. That's why I'm standing. Go on, then. Let's talk about your campaign. How many? There's been reports uh, that you don't have enough support even to get into the ballot next week is that right no that's not right so how many how many mps have you got on board i took a decision very early on that i was not going to play that sort of dare i say willy waving on numbers and so um that's been my decision so i'm not giving a running commentary but i'm talking to lots of colleagues and um finding lots of people who like my ideas and so you're, you're all right to get into the ballot Yes. You've got the, is it eight you need? It's uh, two, a proposer and a seconder, and then six signatures. And have you got 16 to get through the first round, the minimum bar for the first round? I do believe I have. Okay. We'll know on the day of the ballot. Yeah. Is there anyone, anyone else who's running who you wouldn't serve in their cabinet? People have, other people have said, well, I wouldn't serve in Boris Johnson's cabinet, I wouldn't serve in Dominic Raab's cabinet. Well, I'm running myself, and I'm hoping that, therefore, that's going to be academic. But, um, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's great to see a lot of candidates 
putting themselves forward, it's really important that there's plenty of choice out there. And I, you know, I think they're all very good individuals. They're really good colleagues. But Boris hasn't phoned up and already offered you one of the top three jobs this time. <laughs> I'm just uh, falling into another piece of dog mess. Oh, that's, not, that's not a no. <laughs> Has Boris been on the phone saying, come on, Andrea, the water's lovely. Come on, everyone, get on the bus. I've, I've had plenty of chats with colleagues, but um, actually, no, I haven't had a chat with Boris. Other people have tried to, tried to win you over. You're now chewing very deliberately on, on some ice cream cone. Well, actually it's the flake and I didn't think you'd want me to spray it at you. Um, so, Are I you mean, being wooed? Are you being wooed by other campaigns? No, no, okay. I'm, I'm running my own campaign. Are you determined you're not, gonna, you're not going to pull out again? You're determined to sort of see the process through? I can absolutely tell you 100% there is not a shred of absolutely any intention for me to withdraw. You've got to keep on going. Absolutely. And what, because I mean, it is a huge field. Uh, it was 13, it's down to 11. There could be five more if anybody makes, I mean, I, I would have thought being Prime Minister requires a certain amount of decisiveness, which is eluding those who still haven't even thrown their hat in the ring yet. But anyway, what marks you out in that field, do you think? Well, I would say that I am precisely a combination of decisiveness and compassion that I think are qualities that really are needed in a leader. So you need to be able to make swift decisions once you're in possession of the facts. And you need to have the compassion to see how that will impact on people. So I have a huge vision for the United Kingdom once we've left the EU, which I'm happy to talk through. But ultimately, in terms of my own personal attributes, I'm a normal person. You know, my parents divorced when I was very young. My, I've, I've known sort of hardship and family breakdown. My, my mother and stepfather set up a successful furniture shop. And under labour, we saw exactly how much they dampen aspiration and hard work and tap it out of you and make your life miserable um, and then of course I had a 25 year career in finance and in charities so I you know I've learned a lot over the years but as a normal person and I think that will bring to bear combined with you know the ability to make decisions to form good judgments and to show real compassion. Do you think it matters that quite a lot of those who are running are privately educated PP, Oxford PPE types of which and men, uh, of which politics is not necessarily short of that type of person. So you might have noticed I'm a woman, and I went to... Well, it's to... not for me to say. I mean, <laughs> no, <it's> thank not... <laughs> you, thank you. You don't want to notice. Um, I went to Tunbridge Girls Grammar School and then to Warwick University, so that's, you know, that's who I am. Do you think that Britain needs another old Etonian Prime Minister? You know, that, that is a matter for the parliamentary party to decide on and then the membership. And I think there will be lots of opportunities at the various hustings that are planned for people to get a good look at who the next candidates are. And I'm sure that constituents of every MP will be um, writing to them, urging them to support one candidate or another. So I do think that um, although the nation doesn't get a vote on it, they will certainly get the chance get, to influence. They'll get, a, yeah. they'll get a feeling of how, how, mm, how people feel. So we're getting slightly caught up in some sort of school trip <laughs> school now. We'll be on a, we'll be on a bus to France. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, let's talk about a bit more about your, your job as Commons leader. In particular, let's talk about the building of Parliament. And you and I have spoken a lot in the past about how grim it is and how, you know, the work needs to be started. For, for people who aren't uh, aware of what it's like, just describe the state of Parliament. Number one, it's an absolutely beautiful building with amazing art and wood panelling and chandeliers. I mean, it is a really a museum. It's a fascinating place. But the other side to it is that the, um, the bathrooms are often broken down because the loos are blocked because they, we have these these 1888 sewage ejectors down in the basement that aren't really working to top quality. Um, pipes burst all the time. We end up where we have to cordon off places because there's been a flood. Um, we even had a flood in the chamber quite recently. We're infested with mice. We've even uh, had rumours of a of a fox being seen running down the library corridor one morning. And of course, <laughs> what, inside Parliament, yeah, running down the library corridor. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And then and we've had these falling masonry incidents. Three of them just recently. And any one of which could have actually um, fallen on someone. You know, they all all fell onto um, walkways, and so it is. It's very, very risky. But of course, the biggest risk of all is fire. And we saw with Notre Dame recently the real challenge with these old buildings with no fire safety um, intrinsically in them. So the palace keeps its fire safety licence by virtue of having 24-7 patrols but actually the ability to stop a fire from spreading is quite a challenge. So So that's literally people walking around Parliament at all times looking for fires. Exactly right, yeah. And we've had 66 fire incidents since 2008. Wow. And I suppose like you said, even if one of the fire wardens spotted a fire doing anything about it before it ripped through the amazing building is well, well that, that that is the problem i mean we have um retrofitted fire doors onto some of the very long corridors but the palace is made up of these huge long corridors with no breaks in between and so yeah and, and also if you go down in the basement which is quite an adventure on its own um where it was designed um when charles barry designed the palace um it was supposed to be a big open basement with um doors that could open at either end that would bring 
bring cool air in in summer and there are something like a thousand chimneys going up through the palace so that would distribute cool air and then in the winter you had these huge steam generators that would generate hot air and that would as if parliamentarians don't do <laughs> enough for themselves I would, um, I would never have dreamed of saying that <laughs> it didn't even occur to no. you did it um, so it would keep it cold in, in, in summer and warm in winter but um, that open basement as soon as uh, you know uh, electrics were introduced and, and main sewage and so on uh, that basement is now stuffed with pipes and wiring a lot of it we've no idea where it goes the pipes are lagged with asbestos so it's a real hazard down there let's talk about another building because we've now reached the point where we're at the back of Downing Street so we can sort of see up the oh, back yes. of Downing Street um, imagine you win the leadership contest you go to see the Queen Prime Minister Ledson would you like to form a government what, when you stand in the street outside what's your what's your message well, it's one of optimism for the future of the United Kingdom and it is a desire to enable every person in this country to be the best that they can be. So people start with problems or they start with triumph and then their life takes a different turn and actually what I think is that the government should never get in the way but that it should always be there to support you. And you get in through the door, the famous black door, what's your sort of first job that you sort of get on with doing? Obviously appointing a cabinet, do you know who's in your top team? Have you thought about that? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've given it a lot of thought over the years as I've sat there in <laughs> cabinet meetings. Um, definitely. I mean, Chris Grayling, obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm actually not going to make any announcements here and now, Matt. Uh, That's a shame, you, you should. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I should. That would really go down well. But no, I think it's, um, it's a, it, that will, of course, be a very important first decision. I'd also like to um, really professionalise the um, way that Number 10 um, organises itself you know I think it would be, it'd be great to see um, a proper chief operating officer there who can actually um, support the difference between policy departments number 10 departments can improve communications between the um, central conservative headquarters and number 10 between the policy unit and, and so on just I would really like to have a proper communications channel for MPs to be able to feed their great ideas into number 10 for new policies that could make their way into the manifesto I'd want to reach out to MPs with a regular weekly surgery. I think Margaret Thatcher used to have a surgery once a week. Um, nine o'clock on a Monday evening, you could go and find the Prime Minister. Um, and, you know, drinks parties in the Prime Minister's office in, in Parliament. And actually, just being available, enabling colleagues to come and chat to you, feel they know you, feel that you're listening to them, I think is all going to be really important to set the tone. And is that an implied criticism of the way that Number 10 has been operating? The, the and partly because it's been so absorbed by Brexit, but the, it's been a bit detached from everyone else, whether it's the party machine or MPs or even to some extent the media. Well, I've, I've only known um, the Cabinet in the last three years, so it's really this the way it runs now and so you know I've sort of observed what I what I like about it and what I'm not so keen on so I'm not um, criticising the way it's run now but I'm just saying I would like to do things differently. And you mentioned you mentioned drinks of an evening we should probably talk about pizzas. Ah pizzas. And pizza club. Yes indeed. Your your frequent gatherings of naughty Brexiteer cabinet ministers. Well, you see, they actually weren't. The, the, um, the actual pizza group were people who were committed to supporting the Prime Minister to delivering Brexit, which is not the definition of naughty. It was actually the definition of supporting government policy. And so how did the pizzas come about? Is it right that your first meeting you didn't have pizzas? <laughs> well, uh, it's true. Actually, at our first meeting, I'd arranged this fantastic Lebanese, like, you know, 
different dishes for everyone to sort of nibble on and then um, I think it was David Davis who said well if we have another meeting we don't want any of this we want a decent pizza none of this foreign muck we good old-fashioned British pizzas (laughs) you said that (laughs) no I think he said something about dinosaur food because you know it's all sort of nuts and and (laughs) seeds and so on I thought it was delicious but you know we then reverted to pizza so it could have been Meze Club well Meze Club could have been good couldn't it yeah but pizza sounds quite good pizza does sound more fun What would you be doing if you weren't a politician? Well, I've always said I'd like to be a head teacher. I mean, I, my passion for, um, for really helping people to aspire and to, to make the most with whatever they have, however much or small, whatever their talents are, I just love the idea of inspiring people to be the best that they can be. So, yeah, I, I, I still think it would probably be a teacher. And how do you switch off from politics? Have you been, since you've had a week or so out of the Cabinet, have you been able to catch up on three years of telly yeah I mean I've had my nails done and <laughs> no actually it might surprise you to know Matt but I had to move out of the leader's office that was such a completely devastating moment because the team there is so fantastic you know I owe them so much uh, it really bonded as a team so I think we were all uh, a bit sad um, you have to actually pack up and go moving back into my parliamentary office launching a leadership bid you know so there's not much time to get my nails but done you've not been watching Fleabag then not actually not recently no I'm going to have to do catch up on that which is uh, so how do you unwind well I actually do really enjoy reading Um, so before going to sleep of a night I'll read a bit of a book and uh, in fact Esther is going to be reporting on that um, in the very near future so I do like reading love watching films Um, I was saying what sort of books political biographies um, I will flick through those, but I'm not riveted to other people's, you know, examples of their triumphs and disasters. I'm creating my own. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's absolutely oh, terrific. Dear. Now, just finally, you mentioned you mentioned Margaret Thatcher and her, her regular surgeries. Do you see yourself in that mould? Are you... I don't want to um, sort of see myself as somebody else, but what I do think is she had the same decisiveness that I like to think I have, the ability to form a view and then back herself and persuade people to go with her. I think I'm a really genuine team player and I just genuinely do not know whether that was an attribute that she was um, um, believed to have. Um, but I, I, I do believe I'm full of compassion and, and a desire to see the world and my country be the best that it can be and I, I you know I'm really ambitious for what we can achieve well it's been an absolute pleasure we've had a beautiful walk in the sunshine yeah we really have for the first time I've delivered on the promise of an ice cream yeah, of all of these well walks done. nobody's ever actually had an ice cream before yeah, so that's uh, and I was wearing mine yes you've had you've you know we've <laughs> Um, you used it as all sorts of excuses to avoid answering questions. Uh, but I hope that now, you know, now that you're speaking to the Times again, I hope we, we can maybe one day do it again in the future. Well, I'm talking to you, Matt. Are you not it's t- not the same as the Times, is it? No, no, don't tell anyone. Don't exactly. tell anyone. It's all a big secret. Exactly. Yeah, nobody in the office knows I do a podcast. It'll all be fine. <laughs> Angela, so it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt.